Flavor doesn't kill you, make you stronger. That's our philosophy here. Right? <laughs> I think the but I think the truth is, whatever doesn't make you stronger kills you here. <laughs> um, okay, lots of done to do. Um, so I wanted us to get to the holy sonnets, but um, who knows if we will. Um, but I, I also wanted to pursue the question of, um, that we started with yesterday, which is, um, to what extent do you, or to what extent does he imagine that you will hold him responsible for these various poems? Um, that you ask, people ask that question about um, Anne Dunn, for example, like what would she think about the fact that he had done this? Um, I think that, that one thing you can do is think of Dunn as a very dramatic poet. That is, that what he's doing as a poet is not that much unlike what Shakespeare does in writing speeches and plays. He's giving you lots of different characters, and those characters are um, certainly can't simply be identified as Dunn himself. Um, a poem that I mentioned uh, on Monday, um, and we'll read for you today because you don't have it, is um, the poem Break of Day, um, which is spoken by a woman to a man. Um, and it's like many of his poems, um, which is that it's about uh, the experience of sex. Um, some of his holy sonnets are also. Um, but this is not exactly holy, but it's um, we only figure out unless we are told by our professors that the speaker is um, in this poem is a woman in the second stanza. Um, so here it is. It's tis true, tis day. What though it be, O wilt thou therefore rise from me? Why should we rise because tis light? Did we lie down because twas night? Um, so what's the joke in that question? Why should we rise because tis light? Did we lie down because twas night? Yeah. Why should we stop our nonstop sex marathon just because it's day now? Yeah. Um, given the fact that it wasn't the fact that it was night that caused us to lie down. We had different reasons for going to bed. Um, why should the fact that it's day be a reason for getting up? Love, which in spite of darkness brought us hither, should, in despite of light, keep us together. Light hath no tongue, but is all eye. If it could speak as well as spy, this were the worst that it could say, that being well, I fain would stay, and that I loved my heart and honor so, that I would not from him that had them go. So what she's saying is light isn't going to gossip on us. It's true that the light is shining in on us, um, spying on us um, when we're trying to be alone. And yet here's light coming in, peeping through the window, um, to quote Shakespeare. Um, but so what? Because even if it is spying on us, it can't talk. And even if it could talk, what could it say except that being well, I fain would stay. Um, she's doing fine, and so she'd like to stay where she is. And that I loved my heart and honor so. Um, 
So there's a little paradox there. How does she get to talk about her honor if, like Ophelia, um, the door was open that let in a maid, that out a maid never departed more? Do people remember that song? Now that song from Hamlet? Um, Ophelia sings that song in her mad scene. Um, um, Tomorrow St. Valentine's Day all in the morning betimes, and I a maid at your window to be your valentine. Then up he rose and donned his clothes, went to the chamber door, let in the maid, that out a maid never departed more. So what's the joke in Ophelia's song? Yeah. You go into the room uh, virgin, but you don't leave virgin. Right. So it's, yeah, you leave, just not as a virgin. Um, so here she's saying, All, what could the light say but that I loved my honor? Um, but honor here means um, chastity or premarital chastity. And she's just been, um, or at least reputation, she's just been having sex with him. Um, and how could the light say that she loved her honor? Well, that I loved my heart and honor so that I would not from him that had them go. So he has her honor, he's taken her honor, and he's also taken her heart. And what she's saying is, notice that those are, that's almost a, a kind of conceptual pun, that when you take someone's honor, you're supposed to be doing a bad thing, because honor is a valuable possession. But when you take someone's heart, you're supposed to be doing a good thing, because that's an idiom for they've fallen in love with you. And what she's doing, like in A Valediction Forbidding Morning, is she's taking the important um, or reference or control idea of the two as take my heart. Um, you took my heart, that's a good thing because I'm in love with you. Um, there's another thing, you took my honor, and since we already know that taking my heart is a good thing, taking my honor is a good thing also. It means that you have my heart, you have my honor, it's, they're both invested in you, and that's a good thing. So what Dunn has done, um, is taken a, a couple of phrases that have a verbal similarity, but an idiomatic um, um, contrast and tension between them. And he's used the verbal similarity to trump the idiomatic contrast. And he's put it on the side of it's a good thing. So light hath no tongue, but is all eye. If it could speak as well as spy, this were the worst that it could say, that being well, I fain would stay, and that I loved my heart and honor so, that I would not from him that had them go. Must business thee from hence remove? Oh, that's the worst disease of love. The poor, the foul, the false love can. So poor people, foul people, false people, they can all love. Excuse me, the poor, the foul, the false, love can admit, but not the busied man. So everyone can um, agree about love except someone who's very busy, the busied man. He which hath business and makes love doth do such wrong as when a married man doth woo. So um, her complaint now is um, he's got other stuff to do. Um, he doesn't want to stay with her in the morning. Um, this is a not uncommon complaint. Um, given the constitution of gender roles in Western society in the early modern period and beyond, as we like to say, as we like to have trippingly come off the tongue. Um, so um, 
who most might you guess of all the poets we'd read would be subject to this kind of complaint? I'll give you a hint. Look at um, the poem called, called um, The Indifferent on page 99 of the 17th century volume. Oh, you guys have a different cover yet. I can love both fair and brown, her whom abundance melts, and her whom want betrays. So fair and brown there mean what? What's he referring to? Hair. Hair color, yeah. Um, I can love both blondes and brunettes. I can love both fair and brown. Her whom abundance melts, what does that mean? Um, or a woman. Um, no, the generosity, abundance here. There might be probably the physical type would be um, Rubenesque, but the um, moral type, that would represent a moral type, which is, which is generous, um, someone who enjoys it. So her whom abundance melts. Um, and her whom want betrays. What does that mean? What does want mean there in that line? Desire? No. No. See. Is that like splashing? Need. No, need. Want as in poverty. Um, people who live in who live in the direst want. That's um, that you would you would understand the word in that phrase. Um, uh, we lived in want during the Great Recession of 2008 through the end of Romney's second term in 2020. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then Ron Paul was elected and all was good. Um, so how does want betray a woman? A prostitution? Yes. So what's he saying? I can love blonde, blonde women and brunette women, fine. I can love um, women who are generous, partly because they have a lot of leisure to be generous. That is abundance. It's, not, it's generosity in the sense not only of um, they have a lot of sex to give people, but also they have a lot of time for it. They're relaxed. They, they have a lot of leisure in their lives, and they want to use it in a leisurely way by having sex. Um, and her whom want betrays. Um, women forced into prostitution. Um, so that's a pretty strong contrast there, yeah. Isn't that, I'm not saying this for Dunn, I'm saying this for Dunn's character that he's invented for this poem. It's a very callous thing to say. I mean, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Whether you give it up or whether I have to pay for it, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whether you're offering it to me and that's just totally fine, um, or whether I have to pay for it, um, it's all fun. Um, it's all great. Yeah, yeah. Just in general about his poems, are there any where he's actually himself? And if so, how would you know? Yeah, um, well, I think the holy sonnets he is. Okay. And I think um, that there are others where we can guess he is. But just to, you know, just to remind us of, of um, the idea on Monday is that um, you can, th well, think about what it is that makes us like certain actors. 
Um, and it's especially actors who have range. Um, and what we like about an actor who has range, you know, there are actors who always play themselves um, or some version of themselves. Uh, and then there are actors who actually have a lot of range, and um, you're sometimes surprised that um, when you realize it's the same actor. Um, think of Kevin Spacey as someone who has a lot of range, for example. Um, and what we, but we still like actors who have a lot of range. It's something we admire in them. We don't say, oh, good, it's, it's um, whoever, Errol Flynn again, and he always does the same kind of role, and I love that. Um, but it's, wow, look at the fact that this is, um, that Meryl Streep is doing this totally different kind of role from the role that she was doing, that she can play the woman in The Devil Wears Prada, and she can play Sophie in Sophie's Choice, and she can play Margaret Thatcher, and it's all Meryl Streep. That's really amazing. Um, that tells you something about Meryl Streep. We feel like we have a fix on Meryl Streep precisely because we have a fix on her own ability to go so get so deeply into different perspectives, um, her ability to think so hard about what these different kinds of characters are like, most of whom, or at least some of whom, as in The Devil Wears Prada and Margaret Thatcher, have no capacity to enter into the perspectives of other people. Um, and so there's a kind of meta-knowledge that we have of someone like Meryl Streep um, which is that we know her as someone who knows others and who knows others with a certain kind of intense sympathy. Um, that is, she can get into um, what it would be like to really feel that way, to feel strongly and with commitment that you were doing the right thing when you were Margaret Thatcher, um, to feel strongly and with commitment that greed is good um, in The Devil Wears Prada, or to feel um, strongly and with commitment that the choice is impossible, as in um, Sophie's Choice. So, you know, we really admire Meryl Streep, and it's partly that we never confuse her with her characters. But the reason we never confuse her with her characters is because we always confuse her with her characters, but then we can take a step back from that and see that she's a different person in different roles. Um, I don't think it was in this class, but there, there's, a famous, it, there's a famous fact about Laurence Olivier, I don't think I mentioned it in this class, that um, his first star appearance was as Romeo with the Royal Shakespeare Company. And um, did I tell you guys this? He was, he's playing it in repertory with, I think, with um, Julius Caesar, maybe. Um, it's not obvious what you would play Romeo and Juliet in repertory with, but he was playing it in repertory. And um, so he played Romeo as his first um, star role on stage. No one really knew who he was. He was in his um, early 20s. And the next morning, just horrible reviews about this completely awkward, adolescent, tongue-tied actor who was just blushing on stage and just, just, just utterly overwhelmed by the intensity of what he was doing. Then the next night he played this, he played um, Caesar or something. He was just commanding an immense presence and the critics went, whoops. <laughs> um, and so Laurence Olivier couldn't have been a great actor if he'd only played one role or couldn't have been acknowledged as a great actor. Um, but with two, you can orient yourself. Um, with three, you can get the whole plane to orient yourself um, on. So I think you should think of Dunn that way. Um, and Dunn is interested in that. So 
what can we say about Dunn? Well, even if we don't have him speaking in his own voice, which we will, and we'll look at a couple of those poems in a little while, we can see, for example, maybe why he was so, shall we put it, sexually successful um, is that he actually is really good at understanding other points of view. And in this case, he's really good at understanding, at being entertaining. It's something that entertainers have to do, is to know when they're connecting with the people they're trying to entertain, when they're not, what it would be like to be entertaining, what people are interested in, what, they are, what, um, what they're not, um, what different kinds of people will be interested in, in different contexts, in different times. Um, and Dunn is clearly really, really, really good at that. Um, and so if you take a poem like The Flea as a successful seduction poem, um, if you were to make a little short film about it in which she does go to bed with him at the end, you would have to have her laughing. Um, but, um, and just finding this funnier and funnier and being more and more impressed by how funny this guy is. So it's not that the argument is convincing, it's that he knows he's being a cut-up and he knows that she likes the fact that he's being a cut-up. Um, and all those things together um, might make it work. You know, I can imagine um, some The Flea 30 Rock mashup that, um, that would make sense. Um, and you can't? You think that's too much, or, or you can? I can. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right, well. Well, what do we think about Tina Fey? If we only knew her as Liz Lemon, we wouldn't know that much about her, right? But knowing that she writes 30 Rock and knowing that she does Sarah Palin on Saturday Night Live gives you a much different sense of Tina Fey from what you would get from 30 Rock. Um, okay, so now, but now he's writing a poem about that very thing. That is that on some level this has to be Dunn himself who can do all those things. On another level, what the poem seems to be about is his ability um, to just be psychically promiscuous, psychically appreciative of all sorts of different types of people. So it's no wonder if he's so appreciative of all sorts of different types of people um, that he would also be able to write in um, many different voices, ventriloquize many different voices, be a really good actor. Um, really good actors, are any of you actors? <laughs> um, are any of you really good actors? Um, I think what you'll see if you hang around with, um, with people who've given their lives to theater um, and who are not particularly method acting types, that is people who are, who are always playing, playing the deepest role of themselves. But this another, here's another Laurence Olivier story that uh, when he was doing Marathon Man, um, you know, he plays um, an evil Nazi dentist and Dustin Hoffman is his opposite in Marathon Man. And Dustin Hoffman gets incredibly intensely into his roles um, in order to do um, Little Big Man, for example. He wanted to speak hoarsely when he was, he plays in the frame narrative of Little Big Man, he's 121 years old, and he wants to sound like an old, old man. So what he would do before every single shot of him at 121 years old, all the scenes that were shot with him at that age, 
Um, he actually spent three days spending hours a day screaming in a soundproofed room in order to get his voice convincingly hoarse. Um, and in uh, Marathon Man, um, he came to shoot a scene with Olivier. And um, he came and Olivier said, you look terrible. And Hoffman said, yes, I've really been getting into this role. He'd been tortured um, by, by Olivier in the movie. Said, yeah, I've really been getting into this role. Um, I don't smoke, but I've been smoking. And I made sure not to sleep for two nights so that I could really look haggard. And um, Olivier looked at him and said, there is another way. And Hoffman said, what is that? And Olivier said, acting, dear boy, <laughs> acting. Um, and what Olivier and people like Olivier do is they're, they're endless observers of people. Um, they're extraordinary observers of people. Whenever they see someone interesting, they fasten on that person just to see how they behave. And so their way of... Um, and, and Meryl Streep is like this too. I mean, I've read interviews with her where, where it's, clear, it's clear that she's like this. Um, where they just get really interested in anything that um, is an interesting characteristic in a person. And then they will imitate it. Um, they will try it out. They will see what that's like. They'll see what it looks like. Um, Meryl Streep got fascinated with the way people, um, the way women with longish hair played with their hair. Um, and um, she plays, if you watch her, she plays with her hair differently in every different movie. Um, she's really good at playing with, <laughs> she's really good at playing with her hair. Um, and if she'd seen you guys, she could have done each of you to a T, and anyone could tell which of you she was doing. Um, and um, you too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and that kind of fascination, that's what Dunn is like. Um, but then it comes out as, plus, since he's really interested in observing people, um, he's really interested in sleeping with them, too. Um, it's all just part of his kind of voracious interest in what people are like. And that's what this poem is saying. So is it Dunn who's speaking? No. Or maybe. We'll have to decide that when we get to the end of the poem. But is it someone who has Dunn's interest in variety, which is what he's going to, um, the word that he's going to come down on in this poem. Yeah, it is someone with Dunn's interest in variety, in the variety of what human beings are like, um, what Balzac calls the human comedy. So I can love both fair and brown, her whom abundance melts and her whom want betrays, her who loves loneness best, and her who masks and plays. So um, who loves loneliness best means what? Introverts. Introverts, yeah. Private people. Um, people who are poet types. And her who masks and plays. Um, who likes going to parties and putting masks on. Um, who would that be like? Extrovert. Extrovert. Maybe someone like Dunn would also mask and play. Her whom the country formed and whom the town. So both women from the country and women from the town. Her who believes and her who tries. Um, believes means is trusting and tries means is skeptical, um, who makes sure. Her who still weeps with spongy eyes, that is, 
um, someone who is always choking up like John Boehner um, <laughs> or Putin. Um, and her who is dry cork and never cries. So notice that um, the physical and the personality are to some extent going together. And he wants this to start becoming um, vivid. I can love her and her and you and you. So who's this addressed to? The reader. The reader. Um, and what sex is the reader? Female. Female. So it's addressed to a female reader. So it's a little bit like the flea. Um, that is, it's again this kind of charming scapegrace. I don't think I've ever used that word out loud. This charming scapegrace. Um, who is um, basically saying exactly what he's like um, and um, hoping with some reason that, um, that, his, that his candidness will be attractive. What's a scapegrace? Um, a, a rascal in a good sense. Like, you know, you could say to, if you say to someone, you rascal, depending on your tone of voice, you might mean that as, um, come here and let me give you a big hug, or you might mean you're a total jerk. Um, escape grace. Yeah, uh, escape grace would only would tend now only to be used in the first sense. Um, that is, that um, it literally means someone who escapes from grace, who doesn't receive grace. Um, but it tends to it tends to be a um, I love your outrageousness. Um, so it's rascal as a term of praise rather than a term of blame. Um, so I can love her and her and you and you. I can love any with one proviso. There's one really important thing. So she be not true. So what does that mean? No? No? See, it, it's done is always surprising. What does it mean? Uh, she doesn't want, he doesn't want somebody to fall in love with her. Yeah, as long as she doesn't, as long as she's not monogamous. That's the only thing that I demand, is that she not be monogamous. If she's monogamous, that's, that's trouble I don't want. Um, so this is, again, a surprising um, but illuminating um, uh, contradiction to what most love poems are about, which is something like, well, really, all I need is somebody to love. I better find somebody to love. I would love somebody to love. Um, and I'm a good guy. Um, and really, the only thing that would matter to me is, is if she were true to me, if she loved me back. Um, but notice that's actually a contradiction. It's like I could love anyone as long as they're true. Um, means, well, how true is your love if you feel that way? Shakespeare's sonnet 116, which I think is not in the book, but which is the one, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. It is in the book. Uh-huh. So that'll be useful for the exam. Thank you. Um, sorry? Might be. Um, do you remember the next line? Love's not love. Anyone remember this? It's, it's a whole lot of um, double words. Like, he uses the same word yeah. in a homonymic sense. Yes. Or bends with the remover to remove. Yep. Okay, but just right after that, love's not love that alters. When an alteration finds. Yeah, love's not love that alters when an alteration finds. So that's a standard way of describing a kind of bitterness, which is I really loved and you didn't. 
Um, how do we know that? Because I continue to love even when the person that I love no longer loves me back, which means she never loved me, or in this case, he. So let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. Love's not love that alters when it alteration finds. Um, so my love is true because I love you whether you love me or not. And besides, you never loved me if you don't love me now because it wouldn't be love if, if it could possibly alter. So that phrase, love's not love that alters when an alteration finds, is both a boast of sorts, I mean a, a deep metaphysical boast about the truth of his love, but a boast on the part of the speaker, I continue to love you no matter what. And the same set of words is a rebuke to the addressee. Look at you. That's not love. Love's not love that alters the way you're altering. So it's simultaneously his saying, I love you forever, and his saying, you never loved me at all, because if you did, it would be forever. Um, so here, Dunn is saying something different. He's saying, I can love anyone as long <coughs> as it's not forever. Really, as long as it's only for tonight. Um, but, sorry? Maybe the next morning. Well, no, that's the problem with the next morning. What that tells you is that he's trying to get away. That is, she's addressing someone like the speaker of this poem in Break of Day. That is, it's the next morning, and she says, I'm totally ready for more. Um, and he's saying something like, not only did you wear me out, but i got to get to work and do a lot of things, and I'll call you. But he wouldn't yeah. want that type of woman. Like, if he really... Yeah. Well, if he really. <laughs> Which type wouldn't he want? The... You mean he, he's saying that... Well, like the first poem where the woman was saying, don't go. Because mm -hmm. if he's really saying, I can love any, so she'd be not true. Like the woman loved him, so he would steer clear of that because it would scare him. Right, exactly. So, so notice if you put these two poems together, if you juxtapose these two poems together, at least the first stanza of this poem with um, Break of Day, what you can see is a kind of dramatic um, uh, um, conflict between that he's aware of between um, the true love that she's describing, you have both my heart and my honor, um, the true love that she's describing, and his own attitude, or at least the attitude of a speaker like um, the speaker, like the indifferent in this poem, which is as long as it's all fun and games, nobody gets hurt. Um, or it's all fun and games till someone gets hurt, and that's, I don't want any of that. Um, so I can love any so she be not true, and you could say, what a sexist um, dwem. But um, notice that he also sees the other side. And who do we like better, the speaker of this stanza or the speaker of Break of Day? Stanza. Really? Yeah. Why? Break of Day, the guy just has sex with you, and then he's like taking off. No, 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 who do we, the speaker. No, 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 the break of day is the speaker is not the guy. Oh, she's naggy then. Naggy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. That, that's how you feel about it? You don't like her? No. She's like, more, I want more. And you're like, I have to go make breakfast. I'm hungry. <laughs> Which is more important. 
<laughs> See, now he's doing it. <laughs> Is he having a laugh? Um, you guys ever watch Extras? No? Ricky Gervais? Do you like Ricky Gervais? So watch Extras. Get it from Netflix. Um, totally wonderful. Um, you advocating for us not to do our schoolwork? No, I'm saying wait till summer comes, which will be soon, and then have an Extras marathon. Um, extras, he plays an extra. Uh, background artists, as they're called. Um, it's actually how he got to make The Office. It's a fictional, it's a joke comedy um, routine about how eventually he gets to have his own comedy show after being an extra for a while. And um, so extras always have, have these fabulous um, guest stars. I've seen um, Dan Radcliffe on it. You've seen? Dan Radcliffe was on it. Yeah, Dan Radcliffe. Yeah, he's pretty good. Orlando Bloom. Who, who spends the entire time talking about how you would go see Pirates of the Caribbean because of Orlando Bloom. <laughs> and, uh, Is Johnny Depp ever on it? Because I feel like I might have seen No, 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 but he spends a lot of time, Orlando Bloom spends a lot of time talking about poor Johnny Depp. Um, uh, because Orlando Bloom is so out acting him and people are going to see all the Pirates of the Caribbean for Orlando Bloom. Um, and um, um, Patrick Stewart is on it. Patrick Stewart has a, wonder, has a wonderful routine where he's, where he's telling Ricky Gervais the screenplay he wants to do. Um, and he, keep, he has an idea for, it's just the whole movie will be a series of what turn out to be the same scenes, which is that some, some um, female star is going to play with him and, um, in, the, in the scene, and the scene will always be the same thing, which is that he will open the door inadvertently and she'll be naked. And, She'll quickly cover herself up, but then he says, but it's too late, you see, because I've seen her. I've seen everything. <laughs> um, and he has like 10, his, his idea of the movies are going to be 10 scenes like this um, with 10 different stars. And in each time, it'll be too late because I've seen everything. Um, and um, oh, what's his name? Um, Ian McKellen. Um, Yes, like, just, and, and so, so it, it, he's, he's reassuring him. It's very easy. He says, well, you just come in, and, you know, it's, it's um, I, I don't think of myself as Sir Ian. I'm just an actor, and I just walk across the stage, and then I get on stage, and then he does a blow-away Shakespeare soliloquy, and then I get off, and it's just, as I'm walking on stage, I'm just Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian. <laughs> so you guys have seen this. Yeah, that's all extras. So this summer, extras, um, Ricky Gervais. Um, Anyhow, so Dunn. Dunn is not unlike some of the people on Ricky Gervais's extras. Um, and um, no, I think the woman in Break of Day, um, it's a I mean, there are not a lot of male poets. Um, Sidney, I think, to some extent, and Shakespeare um, for sure. Um, but surprisingly enough, Dunn. Um, are the exceptions to the rule. And well, no, and we, we also saw it in Surrey, right? Um, um, in um, Ye Happy Dames. But there are not a lot of male poets in the two centuries that we're covering um, who realize that women are human beings. And um, Dunn, surprisingly enough, turns out to be one of them. Um, and a poem like Break of Day really is that. I mean, she's, she's um, she hasn't yielded her honor. Um, she's as life-affirming and as vital as he is, and it turns out even more vital than he is. 
Um, she's not unlike Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. Um, so, but here you have this person saying, I can love any so she be not true. As long as it's a one-night stand, I'm perfectly fine. It's, it's the George Clooney role in Up in the Air. Um, and then he turns to women again and says, will no other vice content you? No other vice than what? Yeah, no other vice than truthfulness. Um, can't you just have some other vice? So again, the paradox, paradox and parody here and the, the sort of um, uh, wit of this poem is that generally what you would imagine someone saying is, can't you do something else besides being untrue to me? Look, everyone has vices. Will no other vice content you? Why don't you just drink or something? Um, but do you really have to go with other men? But he's saying, why can't you just drink or something? Do you really have to stay true to me? Um, look, go with other men. Don't, that should, you, 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 sh you shouldn't be doing this terrible thing of staying true to me. If you want to drink, drink. As long as you go, to other, go with other men, I'll, that's fine. You can drink. Um, will no other vice content you? Will it not serve your turn to do as did your mother's? <laughs> um, so he's working pretty hard. <laughs> to drive her away or to drive them away. Have you your old vices spent and now would find out others? Or doth a fear that men are true torment you? Again, what would the standard version of this question be? Yeah, exactly. Um, are, um, are we still are we seeing other people, or do you still want to see other people because you're afraid that that I'm going to um, see other people behind your back? Um, how come you're checking my OkCupid okay profile to see the last time I logged in um, when supposedly we were an item? Um, well, the reason I checked your OkCupid okay profile and saw the reason you saw that I was logged in was that I was checking yours. Oh, well, that's okay then. Um, this is an internet thing. I don't know. Okay. Um, doth a fear that men are true torment you? Oh, we are not. Don't you worry. <laughs> Be not you so. Let me and do you 20 know. Um, where have we seen that very number? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. The things you guys don't remember are the things you do. Um, yeah. Um, thank you, Fortune. Sorry? I said 10 points to Gryffindor. Yes. Ravenclaw, though. What's a Ravenclaw? Thank you. To Ravenclaw and Gryffindor? No. No, it's not. It's, it's kind of obscure. Um, Thank be fortune. It, I, I think you would know if it were plural. Um, it's the interwebs. Oh. It's tubes. Yeah, yeah. There's a flow chart online. It's like inter. It's like webs, tubes, and like all this other stuff. It's yeah. It's great. <laughs> so, twenty times better, but once and special. So. Thank be fortunate, death been otherwise, 20 times better, but once in special, in thin array, 
after a pleasant guy. So it's something like the same um, situation. That is, this is a world in which um, everyone is sleeping around, um, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And what Wyatt is essentially complaining about in The Woman in They Flee From Me is that she thinks that um, being true and being monogamous is wrong. Um, so you can see this as um, her response. I mean, obviously the gender roles are switched, so it's done. It's a male speaking to women. But um, something like what her views are in They Flee From Me, or what her views have become in They Flee From Me, at least so far. Or doth the, tear, doth, doth the fear that men are true torment you? Oh, we are not, be not you so. Let me, and do you, twenty know. Rob me, but bind me not, and let me go. So um, rob me, but buy me not is, look, you can have my money, just don't tie me up. Um, and basically it's, yeah, take it, just don't bind me to you. Robbing me, that's good. Um, but tying me up so that I can't go around and get robbed by other people the way I want to, that's not so good. Um, must I, who came to travail, thorough you, grow your fixed subject because you are true. So um, you brought me to a kind of pain. You brought me to working hard. There's um, probably um, a strange um, sense of travail as giving birth. Um, but I, who worked so hard because of you, do I also have to grow your fixed subject because you are true? Um, and there's a sexual um, undertone there. Um, growing your fixed subject because you are true. Does that have to happen? Um, this all turns out to be a song that he sung. We find out in the next stanza. Venus heard me sigh this song. So he's sighing, oh, I can't believe that she wants me to be true. Venus heard me sigh this song. And by love's sweetest part, variety. So there's that word. By love's sweetest part, variety. She swore she had her, she heard not this till now, and it should be so no more. So what hasn't she heard till now? He's written a song that Venus herself has never heard. So what is she surprised by? He, does, he doesn't want her to love him. Um, okay, so Venus is the goddess of love, and she's surprised that he's saying, um, presumably surprised for the same reasons we are, except it turns out not to be so. That's not what's surprising her. What's surprising her is that there's anything to complain about. What Venus is, is surprised by is, wait a second, are you saying there's some women who are true? What's up with that? I'd never heard that, is what Venus is saying. Um, we're about to find out. <laughs> yeah. So, Venus heard me sigh this song, and by love's sweetest part, variety. So what does it mean to say she swore by love's sweetest part, variety? She swore by the best thing about love, which is variety. Yeah. So, and, and that would mean something like um, she said, by variety I say I've never heard anything like this. But if she's, if she's swearing by variety, if she's swearing by love's sweetest part, variety, then she assumes that variety is, the, is at the very center and essence of love. So that's already an indication that she's not surprised. 
that what's surprising her isn't that people are looking for variety. She assumes that's the center of what you, what you want is variety. Um, so it must be something else she's never heard of before. And, what, and it turns out to be, yeah, there's a heresy afoot. And that's what she's not happy about. So the her heresy is she went, examined, and returned ear long and said, alas, some two or three poor heretics in love there be who think to establish dangerous constancy. So she looks around and says, you know, there are two or three people who are just going totally against the theology of love. I'm the goddess of love, and what they're doing is contrary to all my dictates. They're trying to establish this new doctrine of constancy. Alas, that there are even two or three of them. That's terrible. It's dangerous, that constancy. Can't have that. But I have told them, so she rebukes them, but I have told them, since you will be true, you shall be true to them who are false to you. So since you insist on being true, um, you'll be punished for your truth by those who do things the right way. Now that's actually a sudden outburst of bitterness in this poem. That is, here is where you can get something like Dunn's real view, which is what? Which is, he wants someone to be true to him, but, and he feels like he's being punished because she won't be true to him. Like, she, he's being punished for not running around on her by her running around on him. Right. So there are two or three people who believe in, in um, constancy and love. And implicit in this poem is, and I, done am one of them. Not I, the speaker, but I, done. The speaker says, I'm all for polyamory. But the speaker then tells a story, and the story is, yeah, there are these two or three poor heretics in love. Alas, there be some two or three poor heretics in love. And if you ask, well, who, who are they? One of them is done. Yeah. I mean, you can also see it in more of a general sense. Is it's almost like a, a prequel to mm -hmm. like pretty much all of the courtly love stuff we've seen, where the whole point is to want someone who will never want you. So yeah. Like you know, someone like Sydney would also be one of those two or three. So yes. It's not really two or three. It's all poets. Yes. Okay. Good. Um, good. Okay. Let's look. I want us to look at um, one of the sonnets. Uh, sonnet 19, well, I should look at a couple, but start at Sonnet 19, which is on page 120. Um, and before that, although we're, we'll get to this later, but this is something that I actually did want to quote um, last class. Um, in the, this is in the other volume, in the 16th century volume. Um, look at Satire 3, and in particular, um, line 79. I wonder if we want to start a little before that. Um, line 72, page 630 of Satire 3 in the 16th century volume. Um, Though truth and falsehood, so notice we've been talking about truth and falsehood. Let it be true to them that are false to you. The truth and falsehood 
near twins, yet truth a little elder is. Be busy to seek her, believe me this. He's not of none nor worst that seeks the best. To adore or scorn an image or protest may all be bad. Doubt wisely in strange way to stand inquiring right is not to stray. To sleep or run wrong is. So doubt wisely. That's a really good um, piece of advice. The bumper sticker version of it these days is question authority. Doubt wisely. In strange way to stand inquiring right is not to stray. So if you're inquiring, wondering, you're not going wrong. To sleep or run wrong is. That is, it is to stray. And then this definition of where truth is to be found. On a huge hill, cragged and steep, truth stands. And he that will reach her about must, and about must go. And what the hill's suddenness resists, when so. So that's partly a kind of justification or description of Dunn's procedure as a poet. That is, his poems are very naughty. Um, Coleridge, I think I quoted this for you a while ago, but Coleridge um, writes about Dunn whose muse on dromedary trots. That dromedary is kind of camel. So Dunn, whose muse on dromedary trots, wreathes iron pokers into true love knots. But Dunn would admit that, that to get to the truth, you have to take something like an iron poker, and that's what you have to do the work of wreathing into a true love knot. So um, let's look at sonnet 19. We'll just look at a couple of sonnets fairly quickly. Um, and then I want us to look more slowly at one um, very famous poem. Um, they always, I just always cue that laugh track wrong. <laughs> no, that worked. Good. Um, not published in his lifetime, not published until 1899. Oh, to vex me. Contraries meet in one. So that's a pretty good line about a certain kind of psychological experience that it talks about being torn, tormented, ambivalent, at odds with yourself. Oh, to vex me, contraries meet in one. Inconstancy, unnaturally, hath begot a constant habit. So what's the paradox there? He's always, in, he's always in, inconstant. He always changes his mind. Yeah, so he's constantly inconstant. Uh, where have we seen a similar paradox? Thy decay thou seekest by thy desire. Who seeks her decay by her own desire? According to Dame Nature? Hero? No. no. Um, near the 
Mutability. Yeah, mutability is going to mutate. Mutability by her very nature is going to mutate. We get a version of that paradox here. Inconstancy unnaturally hath begot a constant habit. Um, so inconstancy should always be contradicting itself. And so it should be unnatural. It's natural for inconstancy to be unnatural, except that it becomes meta-unnatural for inconstancy by being unnatural to become constant. So inconstancy unnaturally hath begot a constant habit. That when I would not, I change in vows and in devotion. So he doesn't want to. He wants to stay loyal to God. He wants his devotion and his vows to be ceaseless. As Jonathan Edwards will put it, he wishes to pray without ceasing. But he can't. I keep changing. As humorous as, as humorous is my contrition as my profane love and as soon forgot. So he's, notice he's comparing this to his speaker's um, desire for variety. And he says, it happens to me in the world, and it happens to me in wanting God, too. I want to be constant, but I can't. Now this is as, um, if you're asking when we get done speaking in his own voice, this is a pretty good example. That is, but what he's describing is something that's true of human beings which is that we are inconstant, that we can't, um, no matter how much we commit ourselves to something, um, we can't sustain that commitment constantly. Um, we want to, but we can't, and sometimes that's tormenting. Just think of any New Year's resolution that you made 12 weeks ago. Just spend a second, see? Um, that part of what it means to be a human being, he's now describing. He's extraordinarily good in the Holy Sonnets at describing um, a really deep human experience. This is where he sounds most like Wyatt. As humorous is my contrition as my profane love. Remember what? Remember the theory of the humors? So humorous there, I th I'm sure there's a note on it. Um, well, I might be sure, but I'd be wrong. I'm wrong. I'm sure but wrong that there's a note on it. Full of different humors. That is bilious, full of bile, or phlegmatic, or saturnine, or sanguine. Um, he's constantly changing his moods. Humorous there means moody, would be how a 21st century poet would use, is the word a 21st century poet would use. As moody is my contrition as my profane love, but you wouldn't get the meter. But as moody is my contrition, as my profane love, and as soon forgot, as riddlingly distempered, cold and hot, as praying, as mute. So all of these things, just like when you love a person in um, sublunary life, I find that I'm loving God with just as much moodiness, just as much inability to um, stick to my commitment as praying, because we pray to God, but we also pray that the person we love will love us back, as mute, as infinite, as none. So it's infinity and it's nothing. This is all contraries meeting in one, meeting in one poem. 
I durst not view heaven yesterday, and today in prayers and flattering speeches I court God. So yesterday I was frightened to even look up at heaven. I felt so sinful. What do I do today? Today I had prayers and flattering speeches. I court God. Tomorrow I quake with true fear of his rod. Sometimes maybe a, a way of, of um, fixing on this is to think about our different desires. Um, very deep and basic ontological um, conflict that people have, unless they're purely evil. Um, Higher-ups in Goldman Sachs, for example. Um, yeah, I don't know if you guys read the op-ed today, the op-ed this morning in the they're Times. Muppets. Sorry? They're Muppets. Yeah, yeah. No, we're Muppets. They're... No, no, it's the, they call the people that they're cheating Muppets. I know. I don't run a company, so they are Muppets. Yeah. Oh, so you're calling them I got you. Okay. Um, at any rate, um, sometimes you hope there is a God, and sometimes you hope there isn't. And it depends on how you're feeling about yourself. That's what he's saying. Um, so sometimes I pray to God, and sometimes I fear his rod. Sometimes I wish God existed because he would save me, and sometimes I fear that he exists because he will punish me. So in prayers, and today in prayers and flattering speeches, I court God. Tomorrow I quake with true fear of his rod. So my devout fits come and go away like a fantastic ague. So what's an ague? Anyone know? There's a note on that, right? It's a what? It's a shaking fever. Yeah, it's a fever that makes you tremble. So um, he has fits. It's like, a, like fever that comes and goes. Um, so my devout fits come and go away like a fantastic ague. I get the shakes, I get over them, I get the shakes again, they come and go. Save that here, that is, in this context, not here on, in earthly life um, when we're talking about getting, catching a chill, but here in this context of an earth in which God is looking at us at every moment. Those are my best days when I shake with fear. Um, again, that's the same kind of pun as what other covering needs you, what more covering needs you than a man, except desperately serious. So those are my best days when I shake with fear means both the best that I can hope for in human experience, which is so bad, is only shaking with fear. My worst days, I not only shake with fear, but um, I also feel crushed um, with burdens and oppressed with um, hatred and, you know, you can add things. So shaking with fear is the least of it. That's one thing that it means, but it means probably more deeply, if I'm shaking with fear, that's a good thing because it means that I'm believing and caring and that's what will most likely make me contrite is shaking with fear and I want to be contrite. If you look at the, um, probably, the two most famous of the Holy Sonnets, um, look at 14, which is two pages earlier. Um, batter my heart, three-personed God. So you remember why God is three-personed. 
batter my heart, three-personed God. So he's asking God to batter him. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend that I may rise and stand or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. So don't try to mend me. That won't work. You need to overthrow me, break me, blow. Rain blows upon me, burn me, make me new. Total me, as you would say to your car insurance company. I, like a usurped town to another, do labor to admit you. So it's as though some tyrant has um, taken hold of me, but I, don't but I don't belong to that tyrant. I, like a usurped town to another, do labor to admit you. But oh, to no end, reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captived and proves weak or untrue. So you have this viceroy who commands in your stead, namely reason, that you gave me, and yet I don't obey reason. Reason is taken captive. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me. For I accept you, enthrall me, never shall be free. So what does enthrall mean literally, anyone? What does it mean to be a thrall of someone? To be a slave. So unless you enslave me, I won't be free. It's the same contrary. For I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. So only if you ravish me will I be chaste. Only if you enslave me will I be free. So that's the same Contrary. Look at one more since we're doing the Holy Sonnets. Um, this is um, poem, oops, where'd it go? Oh, it's before that. Um, Sonnet 7, poem 129, a page earlier, 117. Um, well, just briefly, Sonnet 10 is, is famous, not nearly as hard, but notice that it's the same kind of paradox that he likes so much. Death be not proud. People all know this one. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful. For thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. So don't be proud, death. You can't kill me. You can't um, overthrow those you think you're overthrowing. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee to do go, rest of their bones and souls delivery. So you are the rest of the bones of men. You are the delivery of their souls. We like sleep. We like rest. Death is that um, intensified. Death is an even better version of that. It's all pleasurable. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. Sorry? We control you. We control you, yeah. So generally, you would say of humans, if you just saw this and didn't know who the thou was, you would think that this was being said about what it's like to be a human being. You're a slave to fate, to chance, to kings, to desperate men. Um, we live, or you live, with poison, war, and sickness. 
and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Now, it actually is death. We can sleep as well easily with opium or charms, can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellst thou then? Why are you so proud? One short sleep past, we wake eternally into heaven. And death shall be no more. Death thou shalt die. So that's like mutability will be constant and rest upon the steadfast pillars of eternity. Um, so look at seven, which is a poem, again, appealing for the last judgment. At the round earth's imagined corners, blow your trumpets, angels, and arise, arise from death, you numberless infinities of souls, and to your scattered bodies go. Um, what's the reference there? Yeah, the last judgment, all the dead will arise from their graves. Um, and so the angels will go to the round earth's imagined corners. Um, why the round earth's imagined corners? Because they used to think that the earth had corners and it doesn't. So there are actually extremely fundamentalist sects who don't believe the earth is round. Because, according to the Gospels, Christ looked at the four corners of the earth. Satan put Christ where he could see the four corners of the earth. That's what it says, I think, in Luke. Um, and if he could see the four corners of the earth, A, it meant earth had corners. Um, B, if the earth was round, he wouldn't actually be able to see what was happening at the Antipodes. No matter how high you are, you can't see around the horizon to see what's happening diametrically across from you. Um, but the Bible says he did see these things. Satan put him where he could see these things. And it had corners, the earth. And therefore, it's all a socialist and Muslim plot, This, the flights to the moon and Apollo and the space program and so on. It's all faked. Like weather maps. Yeah, yeah, it's all faked. It's all faked. Now, weather is actually really interesting. There's um, in Japan, there's a, um, a militant group of, of real weathermen, not like, not like in the US, of weather forecasters. Highly, I don't know if they're still around, but 20 years ago, 15 years ago, there was a militant group of, of meteorologists um, who asserted on the basis of nationalism that it was important that all of Japan always have the same weather because it was one nation and one unity. And um, so they were demanding that the same weather be reported, be predicted everywhere. Um, and, you know, apparently... Even if that wouldn't necessarily be true? Well, the predictions don't have to come true. They just have to, you know, I mean, meteorologists always get it wrong. Um, so it didn't really matter if they got it wrong. If they predicted that it would be sunny and it rained in Tokyo, then if you were in Tokyo and it was raining, you could talk to someone else in Tokyo and you, you could say, see, it's raining all over Japan. The meteorologists got it wrong, even if they got it right about Kyoto. Um, so they, they were, luckily this seems not to have um, become too violent a movement, but they were calling upon, upon violence against meteorologists who didn't assert the unity of weather um, all over Japan. Um, well, you know, China, there's a unity of time zones, which is crazy. Um, 
And what that means is that it's like it should be midnight, but it's eight a.m. and people are getting up to go to school. Um, Locals have their own time, though. In some regions, yeah. No, they, 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 this was more in Maoist China and in, and in um, strictly communist China. They realized that it was probably a stupid idea after a while. Um, so, at the, so that's around Earth's imagined corners. And he, Dunn, who's interested in other planets, I hope you noticed that, um, interested in geography, interested in astronomy, um, puts it all together. At the round earth's imagined corners, blow your trumpets, angels, and arise, arise from death, you numberless infinities of souls. And to your scattered bodies go, all whom the flood did and fire shall o'erthrow. So everyone who ever lived, those overthrown by the flood, those who will be overthrown by the fire of the last judgment, all whom the flood did and fire shall o'erthrow, all whom war, dearth, Age, agues, tyrannies, despair, law, chance hath slain. So there's a quick list of human life, um, Twitter-ready list of the experiences of human life. War, dearth, age, agues, tyrannies, despair, law, and chance hath slain. And you, whose eyes shall behold God and never taste death's woe, that is, those who um, will be alive for the rapture, alive when the last judgment comes. So that's what he wants to happen. Let it come quickly. Let the last judgment in our salvation come as quickly as possible, says the octet of this Petrarchan sonnet. Rhymed, as we see, A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A. And now we get the volte, the turn. But let them sleep, Lord. So suddenly, wait, no, let them sleep. Don't wake them up. Don't go blowing those trumpets yet. But let them sleep, Lord, and me mourn a space. For if above all these my sins abound, so if I'm more sinful than everyone else on earth, so this is done feeling pretty darn sinful as people do when they're experiencing the most intense remorse. I am alone the villain of the earth, says the remorseful Enobarbus in Antony and Cleopatra. When you've done something really bad, it doesn't help to think, well, Hitler was worse. Um, think how bad we would be if that did help. Um, if you've done something really bad, then you feel that you are one whom above all these sins abound. For if above all these my sins abound, tis late to ask abundance of thy grace when we are there. So I should be doing it now, not when the last judgment comes. It would be a little bit late then. So wait, hold off. I don't want to, I don't want to wait. I need, I need time to ask for the abundance of your grace now. Um, what's the connection between line 10 and 11 verbally? What's the balance? Yeah, abound and abundance. Abound is the verb of which abundance is the noun. Um, where have we seen abundance? In the yeah, that her whom abundance melts. So now it's the abundance of God. So for me, there's abundance of sin 
and I need abundance of grace. Tis late to ask abundance of thy grace when we are there. Here on this lowly ground, teach me how to repent. So here, while it's night, while everyone is asleep, don't wake them up. Here on this lowly ground, teach me how to repent, for that's as good as if thou hadst sealed my pardon with thy blood. So if you teach me how to repent, just help me to that. That's as good as sending Christ down to redeem mankind, sealing my pardon with your blood. So just one thing that's just amazing about Dunn is how compressed his poetry is and how despite that intense compression, it's also intensely energetic. Um, it's compressed, and because it's so compressed, it's ready to explode at any moment. Um, and that's something that's true of all his poems. Okay, I want us to look. Um, we'll, we'll have to go on with this um, on Monday, but you should also be reading um, Ben Johnson. Um, but look at the poem called The Canonization, um, like many, one of his most famous poems. It's got a lot of really famous poems. Um, more than most people, um, more than most poets, Dunn has a lot of re really famous poems. Um, so what does canonization mean? To make a canon? Mm -mm. Not to make a canon, to make a saint. To make a saint. To canonize someone is to make them a saint. It comes from making something part of the canon. You're right. What a canon is is a collection of holy texts, um, holy works. Um, actually, I'm not sure of the root. I'm not sure which is a metaphor for which. But in this case, it means uh, making someone a saint the way um, Benedict XVI is attempting to canonize Mark, uh, Mother Teresa and is also attempting to canonize John Paul II. Um, that would, they would then become, become Saint Teresa and Saint John Paul. Um, so the canonization, the making into a saint. Um, do people know this poem? Is this familiar to people? For God's sake, hold your tongue and let me love. Um, again, just to, just to go back to your, your issue, this is probably close enough to Dunn speaking himself. Um, there's another sonnet, which is certainly him speaking, him, speaking himself. Oh, not a sonnet. Um, where is this? Um, no, it is sonnet. I'm sorry, sonnet 17, um, page 119. Since she whom I loved hath paid her last debt to nature. So that's a sonnet in memory of his wife, Anne. Um, and there again, he's certainly speaking in, in his hall voice. But look at the canonization. For God's sake, he says, to whom? To... Um, anyone who's bothering him, to those around him. For God's sake, hold your tongue and let me love, or chide my palsy or my gout, my five gray hairs or ruined fortune, flout. With wealth, your state, your mind with arts improve, take you a course, get you a place, observe his honor or his grace or the king's real or his stamped face, contemplate what you will, <coughs> contemplate. Excuse me, I got the grammar wrong. Um, get you a place, observe his honor, or his grace, or the king's real, or his stamped face contemplate. That is, look at the king, go to court and look at the king's face, or look at his stamped face. Where's his face stamped? 
coins, yeah. So either worship the real king or worship his money. What you will approve, so you will let me love. So what he's saying is you can do whatever you want. You can insult me. You can make fun of me. You can say I'm an old man. You can chide my palsy or my gout. That is that I'm going around saying, oh, oh, the gout, it hurts. Um, you can say, look, you're bald and you have only five gray hairs left. Ha, ha, ha. Um, you can make fun of the fact that my fortune has been ruined, that I'm a wreck, that I'm a mess in every way. Um, you, can, um, you can be just this, this, this um, uh, go see your personal trainer after you get your Botox treatment and get all buff um, and um, take a course. Uh, get yourself a place in the theater or in court. Um, spend time with important people, with his honor or his grace or even the king. And certainly the money is fine. Do whatever you want. Just leave me alone so I can love this person. So will you let me love? I don't care what else you do and how successful you are as long as I can love. Each stanza will end with the word love, really with um, a verb followed by love. Um, let me love, she and I do love, mysterious by this love, and so on. Um, okay, we will pick this up on Monday, but keep reading. Would you know about what they can prove it in Well, we bring your books.